Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media library at chccny.com. Sorry, but I, I couldn't resist just throwing it in, in the beginning, just sitting up here listening. Um, our oldest, Jameson, uh, loves the iPad, loves technology, as I'm sure many of your young kids do. And um, unbeknownst to me, it's wonderful, I'm looking at a credit card statement uh, two weeks ago. And uh, I saw there were some charges on there. At first I said, oh, I guess identity theft, somebody stole my card. I saw iTunes, $50, $50, $85, $85, $50. I counted about $800 worth of charges that I didn't know anything about. Called up Apple and I you know, went through the whole process waiting. I'm, I'm pretty mad, right? Pretty mad at this point. They proceed to tell me, no, I'm sorry, sir. Actually, the charges are over $1,500. Yeah, yeah, so Jameson was playing on the iPad, ordering stuff like get these games he plays. Parents, how many of you, this has happened to you, and your kid has racked up some nice bill? My kids at school, I told them the story, and they said, Mr. Lecce, you know, it's called whaling. It's actually a kid that racked up over $50,000 on their parents' credit card. I went into the kids' room. So I went into the kids' room that he's sleeping. I'm trying to wake him up because mom's not home, things I can get away with. I'm like, hey, buddy, you up? Because uh, daddy has to talk to you about something. <laughs> right? We need to talk right now. I don't care if you're five. Crazy. He says to me in the car going to school this week, daddy, by the way, on the, uh, on the iPad, um, I didn't do that. A stranger did it. Uh, no, no, Lewis did it. Lewis is the dog. Right? So, you got to love it. What's that? He is such a good boy. I didn't know he's, he's listening. Wow. Jameson, daddy loves you very much. Right? And we know that somehow you got the password to the iPad. I don't know how that happened. Lewis didn't give you the password, and daddy didn't give you the password, so maybe mommy gave you the password. No, whatever. But anyway, you know what I mean. Well, I want to welcome you again, mothers. Let's get back to a, on a serious note. Uh, I wanted to start here with a little story on a, you can see, and by the way, I spelled that wrong on purpose. If you're like, that's not how you spell crummy. I know there are two M's. It's a play on words. All right, when you leave here today, this message is dedicated to you mothers. Uh, I hope you feel pretty crummy, but not the crummy that the world would say. I hope you feel a different kind of crummy today. Well, on a very cold, crummy January morning a few years ago, there was a world-class, prolific violinist, a virtuoso by the name of Joshua Bell. Put a picture up here so you can uh, see Mr. Bell. Uh, There he is. He's an amazing violinist. Uh, There was an experiment that was going to be run by the Washington Post devised this, and they took Bell, and they put put him in a Washington metro station, Lettenfont, Plaza Station, whatever, Suzanne, I don't even know if I pronounced that correctly. Well, they put him in this station, and they had him play six of Sebastian Bach's most famous concertos, right? Six of them. The most moving, stirring music you could ever imagine. He's playing on a $3.5 million Stradivarius. Now, you may not know what a Stradivarius is, but I'll tell you, the sound that resonates from a Stradivarius cannot be replicated. They have tried for centuries. Can't do it. So $3.5 million. So they take this guy. Now, two days before they they, uh, completed this experiment, he was in the uh, Boston Stately Symphony Hall where the cheapest seats, the nosebleed seats, went for $200. So this guy, I mean, he is at the top of his craft. So here he is. They put him in the Washington Metro Station. They want to see. This is an experiment. Will beauty transcend? 
This is an experiment in context and priorities in an austere kind of setting. You know, just there's nothing, it's just common, this setting. There's nothing really extraordinary about it. Will people actually stop? He plays for 45 minutes, right? 1,097 people. You can go online when you get home. You can go see this experiment. It's wild. I show my kids in school. 1,097 people pass by. They're listening to his music. Only seven people would actually stop. He would make $37, just over $37 in tips. One person gave $20, and she recognized him. Out of the 1,097 people, only one person recognized who this guy was. So there are these people, right? They're heading to their jobs. They're heading to wherever they're going to be going, and they're busy, they're busy, they're busy. But how could we not look at this and say, wow, how many moments... Do we miss because we're so busy? Here is a world-class violinist playing, I mean, the most moving music in the world on an incredible instrument, and people didn't stop. How many moments of our lives do we actually miss because we're too busy and we're too wrapped up in our routine? You know the old adage. You've heard it before. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. It's kind of true of everything. But isn't it really true of miracles? Isn't it really true of miracles? And I would say to you, miracles are happening around us all the time. Every sermon I've delivered since Easter, I'm kind of starting this way, trying to open our eyes before we get into the biblical text. You know, C.S. Lewis said it one way. He said, you know, a true sense, one of the truer senses of spiritual maturity is, can people find the miraculous in the monotonous? Let me say it again. Can we find the miraculous in the monotonous, the seemingly ordinary th- things that we do in our daily existence, can we find that? 19th century uh, essayist Thomas Carlyle likened it to a man living in a cave his entire life. And he comes out of that cave, a cave and you can imagine the rapt astonishment as he sees the sky, the sun, things that we are seemingly indifferent to because we see them every single day. Oh, the miraculous can be found in the monotonous. When you leave here, you can find it when you go outside. When you go to work tomorrow, you can find it. You just have to know what you're looking for. G.K. Chesterton, one of my favorite authors in his book, Orthodoxy, this is like top five most favorite quotes for me. And I'm only using part of it. You've heard, I used it many years ago, but it's just, it was too good for me not to take a piece. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony, but perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It's a theatrical encore. Do it again. And we look at it and say, yeah, been there, done that, seen this already, know what this is all about. What if there really is a God who is in heaven and every single day and all the angels are astonished when they see the sunrise and they see a sunset and they see the moon come out and they watch waves crash on the shore. What if that's really true? Because I believe it is. You know, and and one author put it this way. He said, You know, we're wired in such a way that we're very hypersensitive to new stimuli. But I love how he put it. He said, but over time, the cataracts of the customary cloud our vision. The cataracts of the customary cloud our vision. Little alliteration there. Just love that phrase. 
we lose our awareness of the miraculous, and in that, we lose our awe of God. If you have your Bibles, I want to look at a, a famous passage. It's uh, in Matthew 15. The story can also be found in Mark's Gospel. We're just going to look at Matthew's version of the story. Remember I said to you two weeks ago, when we were looking at the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus walking on water, these different gospel accounts. It's not that, hey, wh- why are these stories so different? Mark is the first gospel writer. Other writers here, you have Matthew, Luke, and John, they're filling in maybe other pieces. They're assuming that, oh, all right, people know this part of the story. Let me just add this little piece. So we're going to start in chapter 15, and we're going to be in verses 21 through 28. If you don't have a Bible, the ushers are passing some out. Let's pick up at the top. 21. Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her, Not a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed two days later. And her daughter was healed that night. Her daughter was healed that very hour. That very hour. Pretty amazing story. Let's break it down. Let's really look at this. And the first thing I would like to bring to your attention is if I can put a map up there for you to see. I don't know how well you can see it. This is the, if you take notes, this is the only time in Jesus' ministry he leaves the Galilean region. It's the only time. So right away, you should go, whoa, this obviously has to be pretty important. This is, a, this is a huge event. If it's the only time he's leaving this whole region, his whole earthly ministry, what we have in the Gospels, this is the only one. And you can see up here, it's important to set the context So you can see where much of, you know, the city's here, much of his ministry is here. And then you see up here, you see Tyre and you see Sidon. There is a strong dislike. I mean, you can think of like sports sports analogies, like Met fans, Yankee fans, like they they don't really like each other. Maybe Jet fans and Giant fans, what have you, right? This is like a hatred that is at another level. And let me give you the reason why these people don't like each other. You see, the produce from the Galilean region, from the Jewish people, would not wind up at the table of Jewish peasants. You know where the produce went? It went to Tyre, up north, out of their region. This is a place, a people, where imbued in this culture, you see debauchery, you see lechery, you see all kinds of idolatry. These people couldn't be any farther religiously, theologically, socially, culturally, from the children of Israel. Josephus, a first century historian, this is what he said. This kind of captures, encapsulates everything. The people of Tyre are our bitterest enemies. You can't really understand the story until you see the, back, the backdrop. You see the context. 
These people don't like each other at all. They're sworn enemies. And you may ask yourself a question too, well, why is this the only time that Jesus left? Purely conjecture and reading commentaries, reading what authors have to say, nobody knows for sure. Some would say that, and this kind of makes sense to me, his earthly ministry is coming to a close at some point. In the Galilean region, his popularity, I mean, everybody knows who he is. All of the miracles he's performed, all of the teaching, there are throngs of people that want to be near him. He's trying to get away and maybe get some R&R. He wants to teach the disciples some things before he's going to depart. Makes sense. Again, is that what happened? We don't know. But I would like to believe that's, that's possibly the reason there. So these people really don't like each other at all. And, and to give you a little more context on this, to see how badly they're regarded by the Jewish people, you'd have to look at Matthew eleven twenty. Jesus has performed many miracles for the Israelites. But he will, he will denounce them in here. Look at this right here. I'll just read it to you. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. Now this verse should make, this should make sense to you. You can see Jesus using the context, the cultural context here, that these people don't like each other. They don't want to be near each other. Can you imagine the disciples when Jesus is saying, you know what, we're going to go. We're going to, go to, we're going to go to Tyre. We're going to go to Sidon. What? Really? That's where you want to go, Jesus? Our sworn enemies? Jesus says, let's go. That's where we're going. Time to follow. I'm the rabbi. I'm the master teacher. Follow me. And so they go, and it it is interesting. He is the master teacher. And one commentator, he's an incredible scholar, reading a book by him this week, I couldn't put it down, and reading reading his uh, points on this passage, his thoughts about this story, and he had this to say. He said, you have to understand in this story, there are two tests that are going on. You see, there is a test, as you just reading the text in the beginning, you probably understand there is a test for a woman. A Syrophoenician woman, this, this, this Canaanite woman, this foreigner. But this is also a test for the disciples. And how many of us know, as my AP students t- told me loudly uh, multiple times, how much they don't like tests this past Friday as they took their AP exam? How many of you know, you, you don't like, you remember, you don't like tests. How many young people do I have in here? There were tests, right? You didn't want to take. You didn't want to take tests, right? Well, it reminds me of a great story. There is a student that is in an ornithology class, study of birds. He's in the class and he's getting ready for the final exam. This professor has a reputation for giving really brutal, arduous final exams. The kid studies and he studies and he studies, right? Gets into the uh, classroom, lecture hall. And he sees this is not a conventional test. The professor has taken pictures of 25 different birds, their feet, the feet of these birds, put them on the wall, and he is supposed to identify the birds just by looking at the feet. He goes up to the professor. Professor, this this can't be real. This is not the test, right? Professor quips back, no, I'm sorry, this is the exam. Kid quips back, I'm not taking this exam. Are you kidding me? This is not fair. Professor comes back, well, you have two choices. You can take the exam and do the best that you can, or you can fail. Student says, you know what? I'm not taking the exam. I'm going to fail. I don't care what you have to say. He says, all right, you're going to fail the exam. Just give me your name. Kid rolls up his pant leg. 
takes off his sock and says, you tell me. <laughs> Took some of you a little while. We don't, you know, tests are not always pleasant to the ones that are taking them, right? So you have in this story, going back again to the original text, you have in this story, you have a woman, she comes to Jesus with the traditional cry of a beggar. She says, have mercy on me. She humbles, her, humbles herself and she adds a little title, Lord. She repeats that title through this and she also says, son of David. Why is she saying these things and the... And, you should really go, wow, well, this is kind of weird. If this is a Canaanite woman who has not, is not steeped in the traditions of Judaism, why would she come and bow down before him? First, how does she even know about him? She's not from this area. So word is getting out. There is an incredible amount, a deep respect that, is, that this woman is showing him. And you say, well, no, this would have been kind of weird. And also, you have to know, culturally, you did not approach. You didn't approach a man like this. You just didn't do this. This foreigner is coming in, and she is approaching this rabbi. Ooh, you were not supposed to do that. So she does that. She's deeply respectful. And you see in verse 23, it looks as if Jesus is pretty much indifferent. Like, look at the verse. But he answered her not a word when she says this, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her not a word, and his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. I want you to notice something. Matthew is not trying to hide this. He is deliberately drawing our attention to this. He wants us to know... Right? What we maybe don't know at this point, or maybe you do not. This is a test. Again, he wants us to know this is a real test for the, for the woman in the story and for the disciples. This is a test. So you have to look at these disciples and understand, too. I didn't, I, it's worth mentioning. There's an ancient rabbinic saying. Listen to this about how people felt about women. And I'll get into how people still even feel about women. He that talks with womankind brings evil on himself, neglects the study of the law, and at the last will inherit, inherit hell. Really? Seriously? That's an ancient rabbinic saying? That's pretty strong language. So you have to understand, you may look at these disciples and go, man, they're so harsh. No, 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 no. In the culture they lived in, they were doing exactly what would be expected. This was the norm. This is how you treated women. Now, I'm even looking at this in, in talking to my students at school recently. You wouldn't believe this. I'm looking at, you know, Jimmy Carter, former President Carter. Did you know he, he's a, a man of faith? He wasn't an amazing president, but he's a man of faith. And... He actually recently left the Southern Baptist uh, Convention of Church. Left. You want to know why he left? Can I read you a little bit of why he left? Fascinating. I didn't put it up there, but he said he was so upset that people were taking, taking Bible verses and claiming that Eve was created second to Adam and that was re responsible for original sin, ordained that women must be subservient to their husbands and prohibited from serving as deacons, pastors, or chapels in the military service. A little more. This view that women are somehow inferior to men is not restricted to one religion or belief. Women are prevented from playing a full and equal role in many faiths. Nor, tragically, does it influ the influence stop at the walls of the church, mosque, synagogue, or temple. This discrimination, unjustifiably attributed to a higher authority, has provided a reason or excuse for the deprivation of women's equal rights across the world for centuries. Preach it, Jimmy Carter. 
Preach it. This is what's going on. You could see stories. I saw one. There was, a, there was an article. There was an article in a Florida newspaper about this pastor that got up, and this is the stuff that he was espousing. Are you kidding me? In the 21st century, this is how women are still treated. And listen, we, you could look at the world, but I'm talking about in the church. This is how women are treated. It's crazy. It boggles my mind. And they take verses out of context. I don't want to draw anybody out. I don't want to see anybody in particular, but there are some people, some leading scholars that I, don't, I feel bad for them, their views on women. And you even look outside of this. I saw an article this month in the New York Times. In the New York Times, there was an article about conservative Orthodox Jews. Many of them, when they travel to Israel, some of these guys, they, won't, they say in their religion, they will not sit next to women. They're not allowed to touch women. So there were all these stories in the article. Some women were so offended that these men would say, I'm not, I can't sit in that seat because a woman is sitting next to me and my religion doesn't allow me to. And let me tell you, you may say, well, that's their religion. Well, I'm here to tell you, there are plenty of people, Jewish people, that are up in arms over this. A movement has started because they think this is ridiculous that these women, people, would have to be inconvenienced and move their seat because a man doesn't want to sit next to a woman. How come you women aren't into this? Really? Really? Women only procured the right to vote less than, less than a century ago, 1920. Look at the world we live in still to this day. Women earn 87 cents on every dollar a male makes. 87 cents. Still not equal. You tell me women everywhere. You tell me that you're equal in every respect in this country. You're not. It's not the case. It's supposed to be the case. And Jesus Christ, when he came, I'm I'm digressing here, but I think it's important. Jesus Christ, when he came, was the ultimate egalitarian. The one that said, oh, you don't think women are supposed to be over there, and they're supposed to be marginalized, and and they're outcast, and they're supposed to be shunned? Well, I'm the all-inclusive one. Bring them to me. That's who Jesus was, and that's who the church is supposed to be today. If you don't believe in women in leadership, we can talk if you have some time. Probably won't end well for you, but we can talk. <laughs> Heard it by, you know, I've, I've seen it over the years, obviously, being a, a pastor's kid and a woman in leadership. Crazy. I even said to Megan, even at work, I said, we have, a, I, we have an assistant principal at school, and she's amazing. She's like, she's really, I said, she is incredible. She's off the charts. She does, I mean, the way she speaks to people, the way she handles kids, I marvel at the way she deals with things. She's a woman. And women are allowed to be in leadership. Let me tell you, in the church, outside of the church, if you have an issue with that, take it up with God. Now, back to the story. So they say, send her away. Send her away. She cries out after us. Us? Wait a second. Do you see anywhere in this story that she comes up and says, Hey, James, James, John, Peter, Andrew. Does she say that? She's not crying out. How grandiose. She has a problem and she needs to see Jesus. She doesn't need James. She doesn't need John. She doesn't need Peter. She doesn't need Andrew. Let me tell you, sometimes we have problems. I don't need to see somebody. I just need to see Jesus. You with me? So she comes in and she says, I want to see Jesus. So obviously Jesus, using this as a teachable moment, any teacher, any good teacher will tell you, sometimes lecturing is not enough. 
Sometimes you have to do maybe a little experiment. You have to show them right in front of their face. When they don't see it, they don't even realize that they're in a test. And how many times that happens? They think they're going for some R&R. We're going to tire. Where's the spa? Where are we going to chill out? Where can we chillax? Where can we hang out? He's like, yeah, you're not going to a spa. You're still in class. Right? But they don't get it. I remember when I was in elementary school, and some of you maybe can identify with this. They put us, I don't even remember what grade it was, what teacher it was, but I want to talk to her at some point. Because she put us in, in groups, like reading groups, and they tried to make it equal, and they used different birds. You see, some kids, you were in, uh, you were in the, the eagle group, and then other kids, you were in the robin group, and then other kids, you were in the pigeon group. And let me tell you, the kids in the pigeon group weren't reading War and Peace, right? They weren't. They weren't reading sophisticated things. And we're not supposed to look at this and go, yeah, yeah, I don't want to be an eagle. I want to be a pigeon. I want to be a pigeon. Anybody else, you want to be a pigeon? I want to be in the pigeon group. Nobody wanted to be in the pigeon group. The disciples don't realize they're in the pigeon group, right? They need a little help. Hey, guys, um, we're going to put you over here in this group, all right? You need a little more work on this. You need to work on some things. You're still not getting it time and time again. Miracle after miracle, talk after talk, they just don't get it. And then here is part two of the exam. So I love this because Jesus seems to agree with them, doesn't he? You look in verse 24. Look, look what he says. But he answered and said, I, was not except, I wasn't sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Doesn't it look to you like he is agreeing with them? Come on, doesn't it? It looks like he is agreeing with them. Yeah, you know what, guys? You're right. And you can imagine, you see them over there, and they're like, that's right. Yep, yep. And everyone's looking around, and what's going on? This is how we handle things, right? This is the Israel way to do it. This is the Jewish way to do things. Jesus is playing with their minds. He's like, yeah, you know what, guys? I get it. Yeah, We don't have time for some Gentile, second-class riffraff. We don't have any time for this. I have business to take care of in Israel, in the Galilean region, and this woman is taking me off course. She is an outsider. She is an outsider, but she understands who she is. And can we look a little bit at this woman, how amazing she is? What it must take... For a woman, have you ever walked into an environment where acrimonious statements were levied against you? What an acrid environment. Are you kidding this environment? How heated everyone is looking at her. The disciples, other people, you did not, again, you did not go up to a male rabbi. She has a couple of strikes against her. She is a woman in this culture. Not good, okay? Secondly, she is a Canaanite woman. She is a foreigner. Thirdly, she is going up to the rabbi and she's addressing him, something you weren't allowed to do. Oh, this woman has incredible faith. She may be a woman. She may be a Canaanite woman, but you know what? She is a mama. Ooh, right? You may find and see women sometimes, and, and some women may look very dainty and demure, and they're like shy and reserved. Oh, isn't she so sweet? You mess with a woman's kid, their child, they'll roll over you like Genghis Khan. Yeah, 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 it's true, it's true. Hey, I'm in education. I've seen it. I've been teaching for 20 years. I've seen some crazy women come into a school, and when the secretary says, I'm sorry, the principal is not available. Well, let me tell you something. I'm going to see the principal one way or another right now. Am I right, Pastor Joe? You were a principal, right? You do not mess with a mother's child. 
You don't do that. You're not smart if you do that. So she is a mother, and the tension is building in this story because here she is, a woman that has nowhere to go. And Jesus, I, have to, I, want, you, I want to point this out to you. Where is Jesus looking in this story? At this point in the story, he's looking at the disciples. You may think, and, and a couple of scholars brought this to my attention. I didn't see this when I read the text, but it makes sense. He is not looking at the woman yet. He's looking at the disciples. Yeah, boys, looking right at me. You're looking at me. Got me. I got you. Yeah, let's get rid of her, right? Right? Yeah, standing ovation. Yeah, good, good. You guys are with me. Good, good. He's staring at them. He wants them to think, yeah, we're on the same page here, boys. But here is where the tension really starts to build when you look at 25. Then she came and worshiped him saying, Lord, help me. Just incredible that she would say, Lord, But he answered and said, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Oh, this is where it gets really interesting. And you have to understand that when he is referring to her as a dog here in this text, and he's challenging them, you have to understand that dogs in first century culture, ancient culture, they were despised. They were despised. Nobody wanted. They were scavengers. And they would basically roam around. So when, he's, when he uses this word, he calls her a dog, everybody there would have known. It's not like, like today where, oh, dog is man's best friend. It wasn't that way in the first century, okay? It wasn't that way. But I want you to see, too, you wouldn't understand this just by looking at the text. He softens the blow. So in one way, he does insult her. Make no mistake about it. In the original Greek, he insults her. But he uses the diminutive here, and he softens it. And let me, let me read it to you. This is exactly how it's, it really goes. It goes like this. If I can find it, a uh, little doggy, da-da-da-da-da. And it's, the verse can actually be translated, Yes, Lord, but even the dogettes get the crumbettes from the master's table when she responds. So he is talking about a little dog here. He's, not, he's insulting her, but he's talking about a little kind of dog. What kind of little dog would he be talking about? Like a lap dog. But you have like a little lap dog, you hold the little dog. People in the ancient world, and even people today, do you have your dog sit at the table? I mean, aside from like, what's that show on TV? Family Guy and the dog. I don't even know what the guy's name is, but he speaks and hangs out with everybody. He kind of talks. Any of you let your dog sit at the table? I have, Lewis is now living with me again. Lucky me. Lewis is living with us at home again. And you don't know Lewis, you need to meet him, right? crazy. I don't take Lewis, and Lewis wants to sit at the table with us, but I don't say, hey, Lewis, why don't you jump up on a chair and hang out with us? We're going to have steak today. It's Mother's Day, right? And you love mom. Let's celebrate all together. No, the dog sits under the table, and the dog just kind of like looks around. He goes to Jameson's plate, and he kind of hangs out, and he's looking for crumbs. He's looking for something to fall. You with me? Your dog's at home, right? And they sit there, and they're waiting. They're hoping that something falls from the table. So Jesus says this to the woman. He is absolutely insulting her, insulting her. And the disciples are looking at this and they're saying, man, this is really good. But he gives voice to their theology. He's saying, I see what you guys, I see what you guys are up to. And I'm going to insult her. It seems like I'm going to insult her. But I want you to understand too. Do you think that Jesus was was looking back on his life at this moment? Because I do. No one said this, but this is my take. I think Jesus was thinking back to a mother who years prior was also shunned and was mocked 
and was marginalized. The virgin birth, oh, that's Mary. And don't you think people whispered about her and Joseph? Don't you think they whispered about this virgin birth? Don't you think they whispered, that's Jesus, that's the one, the slaughter of the innocent that we talk about at Christmas time, carried children two years uh, old, male children two years old and younger when they were exterminated? I have to imagine in this scene right here that Jesus is thinking back to his mother and how his mother was treated. And he wants to look at them, yeah, 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 you guys think you know, but you don't know, you don't understand. And here is Jesus testing her perseverance. I love people that can persevere. I love resilient people. How many of us love stories, like an unbroken story? How many, right? We all love resiliency. Look at that person went through. Look what this person did. They defied the odds. My favorite genre, reading, right? I mean, I love theology. Don't get me wrong, but I love survival stories. I love to just sit there and read a book, man. Some guy treks across the Siberian wasteland, like a thousand miles. People get out of the Andes Mountains. They have no food. I love those kind of stories. You with me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. These stories are amazing. So here is a woman that is persevering. And you know what I love about her? She is sparring with him. Her response is her having fun back with him. Who does this to Jesus? He is just, if you look in Mark's version of this story, the whole chapter, he is sparring with the Pharisees. What is clean and what is unclean, what defiles somebody. So here, look what she says. Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from the master's table. When she uses little crumbs here, she's saying the same thing. Come on, you got to see this. She's going right back at him. And this is when Jesus realizes, oh my gosh, this is not a normal woman. Did you know there are only two times in Scripture where Jesus commends somebody when he says here, great is your faith? There are only two times, and both times, they're Gentiles. They're not even Jewish people. Both times he commends people and says, wow, great is your faith. A foreigner, somebody that is not on the inside, rewards her. And this is, you know, this is, there are two tests. There's a love test for the disciples, right? How loving will you be towards this woman that is an outsider? And on the other side, you have a test for this woman that is an endurance test. And will the disciples, will they stand by and be indifferent? Will they be quiet? Will they not say anything? And yes, of course, they fail this test like they fail many others. But this will not be their last test. There will be many other tests for them. And here is this woman, she reminds me of the woman who bangs on the door of the unjust judge and says, I will not give up. She reminds me of a Jacob who wrestles with God, the angel of the Lord, until the dawn of the next day, wrestling. How many of you are wrestling with God for things that you want in your life? Come on. How many of us are persevering? How many of us are still praying? I read stories from people like George Muller. George Muller in England, he prayed almost 50 years for somebody to come to know Christ in their life. Every single day he prayed, he prayed. Hudson Taylor prayed, prayed. How about us? What are we praying for? What are we saying? Lord, I am not going to stop. I'm going to be like that widow in the story, and I'm coming to you, and that, that judge was unjust. You're just. You are a God of justice, and I'm going to come to you and believe that I'm going to get what I have from you because I'm a child of yours. I'm in covenant relationship with you, and what you have, all that you have, is mine. How many of us are going after him like that? 
How many of us are running hard after him? You say, well, I, fall, I fell, I fell here, I fell there. Get back up in the race. This is a marathon. Nobody ever said this was going to be easy. This is the hardest thing you'll ever do, but it's the most rewarding thing we'll ever do. And you make it in the context of community. We're running together. We persevere together. You may not feel it, but you are in a marathon with other people that are here, with other Christians around the world. It's time for us to keep running our race. Paul said, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. May that be our prayer at the end of our days. And then look at this. Jesus, I, I love this too. I was thinking about it when you look at the, when she talks about the crumbs. What does Jesus say somewhere? He says, man should not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Every word that falls out of the mouth. If you get one word, listen to me. This is the best part of the message. If you get one word from God, it can change your life. It can change your circumstances. It can change everything that you're going through. It can be a complete paradigm shift. Whatever you're going through, all you need is one single word. All you need is one crumb from God because that crumb is enough to change everything that you're going through. You need healing for your body. You need help getting a job. You're, you're, uh, you're, bank, you're going bankrupt. You're, you're, your finances are a mess. I don't know. Your marriage is a mess. All I'm telling you is if you get one word from God, it can change everything about that situation. All you need is that one single word. You look to him and he'll give it to you. When I was growing up, this is funny. You mentioned, Dad, you had mentioned uh, Grandma, Grandma Lecce, my, my dad's mother. Now, growing up, she, Italian family, and some of you can relate to this, she was an amazing cook, an amazing cook. And we would go over there a lot of times for holidays, but the one holiday I remember, distinctly remember going over there every year was Easter, right? We go over for Easter every year, right? Every year we go over for Easter. And I'll say it because I know my siblings are probably thinking it, and they're thinking it too. My parents are thinking it. We'd go over there every year, right? And I, we would eat so much, there would be enough gluten to feed all of you. There'd be enough to feed every single person in here. You go in there, and right, it was like you'd have lasagna, and then you'd have meat after that, roast beast, and you'd have ham, and you'd have stuffed artichokes, and you'd have peppers, everything. And it was just like, you just knew, like you were like weary. Talk about a marathon. It was a marathon just to finish the meal, right? But my favorite part of going to Grandma Lecce's house when I was a kid growing up was because of the it was the Easter pie that she would make. Let me put a picture of this up. Now, my sister makes this now. Ooh, look at all. Ooh, Easter pie. Some of you are getting very hungry right now as you look at this picture, right? You want to eat, right? You, you, yeah, yeah, building up a little appetite. We would get there, and Grandma lets you would have this out, and there is prosciutto in there, there is mozzarella in there, there is rigotta in there, and this is why I would throw up every single time <laughs> on the way home. This is no joke. I'm not making this up. We would drive home from Nassau, Belmore. And my siblings, my brother and sister, like Jen was always in the middle, but I'd be on one side like, Mom, Dad, I don't feel good. I'm going to toss my cookies. I'm going to blow lunch. Pull the car over. And Dad would, right, you'd pull the car over. I would start sweating as I got in the car to go home because I knew it wasn't going to end well for me. Invariably, 15 minutes into the ride, I was like, I'd start to feel it. I was like, pull the car over. Finally, it stopped. I have no reason. Maybe it was because I was allergic to gluten. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe it was. I don't, maybe it was. But I get sick every single time. So, but here's the best part. When we left Grandma Lecce's house, we wouldn't finish all that Easter pie. 
So we would take some of the Easter pie and she would wrap it up in tin foil and she'd send us off on our way and we would be really excited because you knew the next day you had lunch, you had dinner, breakfast, really. I mean, you had to beat my brother, right, to get to the, the food the next morning, right? Because you knew John was going to eat it. Okay. So you wake up the next day and there were times I remember, I distinctly remember, where you'd open up the tin foil and you see a piece there and you thought at first, like, I really should save some for my the rest of the family, and you're like, nah, it's all right, they'll, they'll live. I'm going to eat all of this. Every single morsel that is here, I'm going to eat it. I may even eat the tinfoil. I'm contemplating that right now. And then you'd stop, but you'd eat all of it, and they would, the, the little crumbs that would be there, the little morsels, I would, you'd lick the tinfoil. You mean, that's gross. You didn't have Grandma Lecce's food. You don't know how good her Easter pie was. You didn't want to leave anything on there, right? So you would eat that. Now, why do I bring this up? I bring this up because if I took one crumb from grandma's Easter pie and I sent that crumb to a chemist and the, in a lab and that chemist did an analysis of that Easter pie, of that one crumb, let me tell you something. If there is milk in the cake, there is milk in the crumb. If there are eggs in the cake, there is egg that is in that crumb. If there is gluten that is in the cake, there is gluten that is in that crumb. I'm here to tell you, this woman understand that, understood that there was healing in the cake. Oh yeah, there's healing in the cake. There's healing in the crumbs. She understood, all I need is one little crumb from you, God. One little crumb and it'll change my daughter's life. One crumb, it'll change your life. this Gentile woman comes look at the faith that she has one more little illustration I wasn't going to do it but I'll do it right I was thinking about it too and it says from that very hour she was healed right that very hour do you remember in like the 1990s you'd go like you had negatives you had film and you wanted to you go to those one hour photoshops right you went to those you would take your negatives and you would bring them into the person. Maybe you drove around. Maybe you went back home. But you'd come back to that store in an hour and you would have your pictures. I'm here to tell you this morning, Jesus can take your negative and turn it into a positive in one hour. The woman in the story went home and in one hour, her daughter was healed, completely healed. In one hour, it's all it takes for Almighty God to change your situation. It didn't say, the text doesn't say one year. It doesn't say six months. It doesn't say one month. It said one hour. Do you still believe Jesus has the power to change your circumstances? So many times I feel like, you know what, for me, and I feel remiss about this, but I've given so many sermons that are probably a little more on the intellectual side. I feel like, we feel like, as a church, we need to come back to our roots a little bit and talk about faith. I'm not just talking about miracles, but miracles are part of this. We have to start believing for things in our lives. What are you believing for? There's no point in just coming to church here if you're not really... God, you know what? I'm trusting you. I'm believing you. I'm going to be persistent like this woman. And all I need is one little crumb for my life to be changed. What are you looking to? What do you need right now? As you come to this table, I love it because you see here, you see the elements, right? And you see the bread. Picture this, these, all you take one piece, of the, one piece of this bread here today. It has the power as you come up. You've done this a thousand times. But I'm here to tell you this morning, taking this one piece, taking the element, this has the power to change your life. 
before you even walk out of this place. This, the, the elements, the table has the power to change your life. You don't have to wait till later on. You don't have to wait till tonight. You don't have to wait till next year. It can happen immediately in your life. But we live in a world that says, miracles? Are you kidding me? Miracles? You're going to hear next week. Not from, you're going to hear about some miracles that are taking place. I know one in particular that you're going to hear somebody's testimony. Because I know testimonies build faith. They do. Absolutely they do. So Lord, we just come, let me come in prayer as we end this sermon. Lord, I just, Lord, I thank you that you're the God of the impossible. Lord, with you, all things are possible. Father, I ask that you would continue to build faith in this place. Lord, like the, the, the mustard seed, the smallest seed, Father, as it grows and matures, it becomes this large tree. Lord, I ask that we would look at those mountains in our lives that look so big, and it looks like we cannot overcome them. They look insurmountable. I ask that we would look at them through your eyes, your power, not our might, but your power, and what you can do in situations. Father, I ask that you would start to work in people's situations. Show us, Lord, show us as a church how you're moving in our midst. Show us how you're moving in our marriages and our finances and in our bodies. Father, show us as a community. May it be infectious. May it take over. May there be a ripple effect. May other people go, wow, that person had a miracle. I'm going to look to you and believe that this can actually happen in my life. Father, may we find the miraculous in the monotonous as we leave here. May we not look at a sunset tonight and go, ah, I've been there, done that. May we see, Father, this is a, a grand encore. May, our vision has been clouded. Lord, may we see who you truly are, what you truly want to do in our lives, and how majestic you are, how glorious, how powerful you are, Father, in every single way. You haven't lost your power. You still can move in our midst. Do it, Lord. Do it today, even as people come up to this table and they come here and take these elements, Lord. We look to a cross that is empty. We look to the cross 2,000 years ago. Because the cross is empty, you took it all. You said it is finished. Disease, death, sin, everything was taken on that cross. May it be, Lord. Amen. Ushers. Thanks for listening to City on a Hill's podcast. For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.